Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Cinema Snorkel. Welcome, welcome. So glad you're here to join us. Casey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Carlin. Tell us, what what amazing film are we going to take a, a little gander at today? Today we're going to take a look at one of the highest grossing films of all time. Sometimes when you say Avatar, people are like, oh, The Last Airbender, and you're like, oh, yeah. no, and they're like, oh, the live action Last Airbender, and you're like, heck yeah, no. No, <laughs> no <laughs> let it no. never be said. <laughs> we're talking about James Cameron's Marines and Blue People in Space. That's right. Epic CGI. The CGI holds up really well. Avatar 2009. And it's timely because there's a sequel coming out this year. Okay, location, shack. And the days are starting to blur together. On to, on to. The language is a pain, but you know, I figure it's like field stripping a weapon. Just repetition, repetition. Nari. 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 She's always going on about the flow of energy. The- Spirits of animals. Really hope this tree hugger crap isn't on the final. I will show the sky people that they cannot take whatever they want. And that this, this is all So, Carlin, what do, you, what do you like about Avatar just right off the bat? Man, this movie, just whenever I'm watching it, I'm so immersed. I'm thinking about flying. I'm thinking about floating mountains. I just like, it makes you feel alive, you know? Like, don't you just, <laughs> wouldn't you just give anything? I'd give my yeah. left arm to get to go to Pandora and like see what it's <laughs> like. And it's just yeah. so cool. Yeah, absolutely. What do you like about it? Yeah, the CGI holds up. The world building's incredible. It is just an epic story. It's an incredible story that James Cameron produced. And yeah, it grossed so much money for a reason. It's incredible. It grossed all the money, yeah. It grossed all the money. Is it still the highest grossing film of all time or has it been surpassed? I think it'll be surpassed by Top Gun Maverick. Nope. Carlin, it's lifetime gross is still in first place. Avengers Endgame is nipping at its heels, but it's still Avatar. Wow. And you know, it's not a new story. Like, it's basically Dances with Wolves, but like told on <laughs> yeah, another planet. Slash Pocahontas. Slash Pocahontas. Slash a million others. But it's yeah. just something about this movie, I think, just really captures the imagination of the audience and of our culture. And and it's kind of an undying story a little bit. Carlin, is there anything that you dislike about Avatar? Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's very we gotta go it's there. very heavy-handed. It's a little preachy. But like it's not saying anything that I straight up am like, "Oh, brother." I think when it came out, I was a little bit like, "Oh, brother." But I think there's actually some really good themes in there. They just do it in a way that's not super delicate necessarily. Like it's it's not shy about its message. There's one other thing that I that I kind of wanted to touch on just briefly. I mean, clearly the message of the film is very anti-colonization. If you think you can come in and just dominate a culture and they have nothing to offer, they have no value, and and negotiation is purely a means of getting what you think you deserve or have a right to, it's critiquing that for sure. But I think ever since the movie came out, there's been even a critique of that that says, this is a story about a white male who appropriates a culture and then steps in and actually becomes more culturally adept than even the natives. And then he becomes the chief, like, but he's an outsider. And (laughs) it's maybe, it's been critiqued as an expression of white guilt. Like maybe this could make us feel better about the ways that, that like white culture has subverted other cultures by, by letting us over identify with um, the minority culture and we can feel a little bit better about ourselves. So I think it's worth mentioning that. What do you think? Well, I think we should definitely talk about that in our themes because one of the themes that I noticed is belonging and like striving for belonging in culture. And that is a really delicate theme. You know, we're like our world is really processing that theme and it's hard to know what the right answer is. But what we could do is just say how Avatar presents belonging in a culture. Right. And then we can talk about maybe our, our worldview of that. So, but I'm with you. That that is tough. I also, uh, I as I was watching it this time, I couldn't escape the fact that uh, Jake Sully is like has done the greatest catfish of all time. <laughs> he gets this Navi princess yeah. to fall for him, and then I don't know why at the very end when it, she's like holding his tiny white <laughs> self, it's like, ooh. Did I kept thinking of 
I kept thinking of fetal Voldemort and, and she's like <laughs> cradling tough. him like a little that's baby. Tough. I know. Yeah. You got to feel for Natiri a little bit because it is like the original catfish. Yeah, it's rough. But he does like the whole point of the story is to say that he when he fully understands the culture, he's an outsider in his mindset Um, up until like he gets closer and closer. He's like. There's a moment where he kills the the animal and he like speaks the word of blessing over the animal and she's like you're ready and then he tames the ekron like okay he's like really a warrior and then they do a ceremony where he becomes fully in- part of their culture okay now he gets it but then he really gets it when he tames the big one um, Maktu Oru you know the big the big banshee the big red banshee and that kind of shows he has embodied now the spirit of her ancestor who pulled the same move in order to unite the tribes so he's fulfilling now their cultural legacy and then the final step of him becoming fully part of the navi people is when his body gets transferred which depending on how you read it is either triumphant or extremely problematic and you know what it can be both i think like it can be problematic and we can be sensitive to that but also i think there's something to be said for like what the story is trying to say well let's let's dive in what, Carlin, what, what were the themes that you noticed in Avatar? One, you should respect Mother Nature, obviously. That's like the, the main banner, right? Yeah, that's, that's big time. Respect Mama Nature. One interesting thing to me is Jake goes to pray to Awa for help against the Sky People. And Natiri's like, Jake, Awa does not take sides. Um, she only protects the balance of nature. But then... Awa sends a legion of um, hammerhead buffaloes to to protect Nateria and to kill the sky people. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the movie's like, they want you to, at first it's like, Awa doesn't take sides. But then, yeah, if there's an, an invasive species, it's like they're saying she definitely will take sides. To protect then. her own. Yes. The whole worldview of Avatar is similar to a worldview called Gaia theory. Okay. I've heard that word, but say what it means. I've written about this recently. It's like the spirit of the earth is almost like one living organism. Uh Uh-huh. And some people take Gaia theory like more scientifically. Some people take it more religiously. But the Mm -hmm. idea is that earth is one whole organism that will kick back against anyone who tries to disrupt the balance. And it feels like Awa and Pandora is a very pantheistic uh, version of sort of Gaia theory, where the whole world is connected with like almost neurons and synapses. Right. And so when you're messing with it, it will fight you like white blood cells attacking an invader. So in, in this theory, then people are outside of the main organism, right? Because right. unless it's like a autoimmune version of Gaia theory, where one piece of the organism is attacking itself... Well, human beings are definitely an invasive species in this world. They've sort of distilled, through the story, they've distilled all of humanity as the invasive species, which is technically, that's correct in this world. Right. Because they literally did come from another planet and the Navi are natives. People are referred to as aliens all the time. Yeah. And that's true. That's actually a very fascinating spin on aliens because it, yeah, it is... It's like, how would our world... And this is what I appreciate about the world building. They're just very consistent in that theme and how it would seem to like indigenous people on this planet to have you know just a totally different species move in and invade, essentially. But Carlin, another theme I, I really picked up on this time as I watched it was the idea of connection versus dissonance. Mm, sure. On one hand, at the start of the movie, it seems like everything's disconnected. I don't know if you picked up on this, but like Jake, first of all, is there's dissonance with his own body. Like he's been wounded in war and he doesn't have the money to fix his spine. Uh And so there's a disconnect there, like from who he is. He's like a a wounded warrior who had this identity with the Marines, but um, and and he still is very much a Marine, but he's wrestling with like what that means when he's experienced such a dramatic wound. Yeah, right. People are disconnected from the Earth. Like, literally, they're disconnected from the Earth. They fly through space to a totally different planet. Yep. The Earth is kind of dead, right, he says. There's no greenery. It's just machines have basically taken over. I just picture, like, the landscape of Wally. That's We've destroyed our own planet, and now we're out seeking 
um, what else we can destroy. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, he's like, we killed Arth. We're not actually told what that means in this world. And then what he finds on Pandora is like connection to the nth degree. That's what the people are about. That's what the force is about. (laughs) And it's particularly illustrated by their weird ponytail things. Right. They're like literally connected to all of nature. (laughs) But then also, I like that you sort of see like, for example, like the science team kind of comes around each other. Like they get to know each other better. You see Grace getting Jake to eat as the movie goes on. They hate each other at the beginning. And then they're actually very tender towards each other as the movie goes on. And so it's almost like the idea is that their connectivity with nature is bringing them in closer to each other. Like they have more compassion for each other. Yeah. And you know what? I think what they are trying to say is that only comes with vulnerability. The same way that Natiri, when she first meets Jake, she's very bitter. She's very angry. She, she'd, she would just kill him. Except for that Awa. Hmm like intervenes and blesses him with the little seeds on his arms. And she goes, okay, I can't kill this guy now. I have to like bring him to the people because her respect for Awa is is greater than her desire to to see Jake die. To me, what that represented is she's like starts out hardened, bitter, protecting herself and protecting her people. And she brings him right into the center of it. She brings him to the sacred tree. She brings him. She's like, you can make your bow out of the bark of the home tree. Like he gets fully accepted into her most vulnerable place in her heart and into the most vulnerable place of the people. And the tragedy is he does this while withholding this information from them that, you know, like, he, like you said, he's, he's the biggest catfisher of all time. <laughs> yeah. So that vulnerability creates connectivity because um, you, you need vulnerability to be known and to know other people. Right. It's almost like in that process, he is um, healing like his conscience and he's trying to become whole, you know, the whole time. Mm. But it reaches that, yeah. that uh, climax point emotionally when he just realizes like he actually is a human being he is of earth he was sent there to destroy them and he's never really reckoned with that and so it's kind of like this fantasy comes crashing down where he feels like he's being more and more connected but he's been living half in a lie the whole time and it feels unreconcilable like after the cringe uh sort of mating scene he wakes up and he's like jake what are you doing and so Yeah. So then the next question I wanted to ask you, Carlin, is how do they establish connection with nature and each other? First, in terms of their ideas about nature, but then second about like, how does Jake heal? Well, let's start with Jake. How does he heal that connection, essentially? What does the movie say? Right. Well, he never really reckons with it. He's living with this cognitive dissonance until the lie comes crashing down on him. But by then, he's already fully committed to the people. Like, when the bulldozers start rolling down the trees, he's like, I- I'm on their side. There's no question of his loyalty anymore. Yeah, right. But I don't know that he ever reckons with the fact that it's kind of his fault. Like, he has brought this on them. In a sense, it isn't his fault because he has to earn their trust if he's ever going to deliver a message that they're going to believe. Um, but that doesn't feel quite good enough for me. Like, right. he is a traitor and she gets angry with him justifiably. But then really the thing that makes it okay is that he goes and he tames the big red banshee. And I guess to me that represented, it's all about, I see, I see you, right? Like they keep saying, I see you, but it's like, do you really see the people? And he gets it when he embodies their ancestral like this this is like a story that they've passed down all the clans know that when her great-great-grandfather was chosen by the big red dinosaur that unified the tribes and it's like jake finally understands that and then he rises to it and is able to do it so he's been chosen by the dinosaur because you can't Hmm. ride it unless it chooses Hmm. you back and so that kind of is like awa's blessing for him i guess how would you answer that question What, what do you think yeah i think that's right on I just as you're saying it, I'm reading it through the lens of of how this movie's been critiqued since then. You know what I mean? And it's hard it's hard to feel yeah, totally right. at rest with that. You're like, ooh. <laughs> like I mean, on one hand, it's admirable. He makes a clean break. 
he's like, okay, now I'm just fully on the side yeah. of the people and I'm going to risk my life and be, right. do just some crazy stunt to try to make this right. I messed it up and I'm going to make it right again yeah. by getting the big dino, earning their respect and then leading them to battle over the colonizers. Right. And doing it with a sense of humility, like his rival guy who's always angry. Yeah. But Jake is always asking his permission, like, with your permission, I will speak. You would honor me by translating. And so he is, like, he's deferent to this guy's authority. And to his credit, he sees that Jake actually is the person that's needed to lead the people into war. And so he, he allows Jake to speak. By the same token, it would suck to be that oh, guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, Jake just comes up, steals your girl, yeah. becomes, like, basically the de facto leader of the tribe. Like, they're taking orders from Jake because he's riding the big dino. Yeah. And that guy kind of deals with it, but it's kind of like, like, I wonder if that guy were to tell the story, like, years later, maybe after the passion of the moment has subsided, and it's like, okay, we won the battle, but, like, mm, Jake, you kind of did me dirty. Like, like how did how did this happen? And <laughs> yeah, You lied bit. to us this whole time, and then at the last minute changed your mind, but now you're, like, our chief. I do wonder how yeah. the next movie's going to deal with you that. Know, this character really reminds me of... Um, Moses and Aaron. Oh, interesting. Like, picture Moses actually grows up in Egypt. He is a Jew. And that's his his hidden identity for all this time is that he is actually a Hebrew. But he grows up raised by the Pharaoh's daughter and in this powerful kingdom. But then he goes back, finds his ancestral roots and gets way more connected to his actual roots. And then he goes back and leads the people out of slavery. And Aaron, who's been in his identity Jewish this whole time has to defer to someone whose primary cultural identity is Egyptian, you know, just kind of a weird partnering there. Oh yeah. And the Bible's really real about that tension. Like the Israelites at first to Moses are like, Moses kills an Egyptian in a, in a crime of yeah. passion. And the Israelites notice that. And, but they're not like, yay. They're like, you're going to kill us. Like you killed that Egyptian. You're fighting for our rights. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, they don't just welcome him as their hero. They're like, you're still an outsider, bro. Like, you gotta, you're gonna have to earn our trust yeah. and respect somehow. I think the key thing, though, for Jake is that he really does have Awa's blessing. If we're gonna just take the movie on its own premises, it really is that Awa sort of chooses Jake or believes in him or that there really is some, like, yeah, like divine blessing on him. In that maybe he was chosen for right. this moment to fight back. Although I don't think Awa has that much agency or foresight. I think she sort of represents just Mother Earth yeah. in a really raw, beautiful, connected form. But I don't think Awa has any knowledge of the future or there's any destiny or anything. It's just like Awa is yeah. somehow... She's selected him. Yeah. I mean, do, well, here's the question. Do you think it's fair to say that Awa selected Jake? Well, I don't see any other way. Like, all those little seed guys rest on him before he's done anything. Like, at that point, he's still very much a human in his mindset. He's, like, using his gun to protect him. He keeps, like, trying to bat off the things. And she's like, stop. Those, those are pure spirits. So she selects him before any kind of knowledge that he could be someone who embraces, like, the truth of Pandora, which is, like, love the earth and love the people. Why does she select Jake? Right. Without without her having any kind of foresight into the future, I don't know that it makes that much sense. But that doesn't seem to be a part of her character. You're right. So I don't know. I don't the know The personhood about that. and the agency, like we're even saying her and referring to her as a character in this. But it seems like the Navi would probably yeah. say she's made up of all of us. And maybe she does have some agency, but it's more about us respecting her and us protecting her and right. getting in on board with sort of the natural balance of things. Like that's the highest good is us getting on board yeah. with her. But the movie breaks from it a little bit by having her do something by blessing Jake, which makes Natiri accept him. I don't know how to resolve that tension. And then in the end, she sends the hammerhead rhinos. Um, like if that's not right. agency, it's on behalf of the people and, and restoring balance because obviously the aliens are bad and they're there to destroy. And so she reacts with aggression. She's very powerful, Awa right. is. And th there's something really satisfying like, yeah, Pandora is not just sticks and, and arrows. It's like there's a real force here yeah. to be reckoned with that even all the, the, the machines can't overcome. 
Yeah, and like the planet's going to kick back a little bit against the invaders. Yeah. I do wish Awa might have sent the <laughs> dinos to charge before all the cavalry got killed. And I also uh, wish Jake might have tried yeah. to put the grenades in the um, plane, you know, maybe first. But the but, but yes, that's picky. Save some lives. That's picky. Maybe. That's picky. No, no, you gotta wait. You gotta wait till the highest emotional that's like, impact moment. That's like a pure Jake move. Way to go, man. He's all about the showmanship. <laughs> hey, here, here's the, something I noticed, right? So we're, it's so cool, the natives, how they do their warfare. They're like on the backs of banshees and they're riding these super cool six-leg horses. But we keep seeing shots of both Jake and Norm with their automatic weapons on the backs of banshees. And they're the sweetest shots, right? <laughs> it's yeah. like, he's like running on the tops of yeah. these planes with throwing his grenades. They're using human technology, right? If we're meant to think bad, bad technology, bad military guys, good nature, why do you think we keep seeing those shots? That's a good question. I mean, on one hand, it just makes sense. It makes sense that they would use the guns against the armored, you know, flying machines and tanks and stuff. Yeah. If yeah, that's all you got, yeah. But yeah. I almost wonder if, yeah, there's a sense in which the technology is neutral. It's how you use it. And I think that's an implicit belief of most of mm. their audience. Sure. But I see what you're saying there. That does seem to be, if we were to take it really literally, at odds with sort of the Navi view of the planet. Although they use tools, so I, I think the Navi are not against tools per se. Well, the, it shows that they're kind of outside of nature as well. Like, even though they are connected to it, they are separate because they make tools. They are have a sense of responsibility for protecting uh, nature and they even when Jake gives his rallying speech he says they think they can just come take whatever we want well we're gonna send them a message this is our land there's a sense of ownership and responsibility there that's not just like I don't know it feels like more than just Awa has total sovereignty here you know what I'm saying I do I think there's just like there's a synthesis there where the best of the human technology is sort of brought into the Navi culture and i wonder if that maybe that's what they're going yeah. for is like see jake's like taking the best part of being a human and he's retaining it like his kind of marine ura culture mm. which we actually do love when we see it in jake yep we do and we love it when we see it in the girl who has the the right. pilot girl. yeah right she's another great example of that yeah and they're using it in the service of the good guys <laughs> you know i think there's meant to be something pretty redemptive there and I think it fits within the world. Like, I think the Navi use bows and arrows, but I don't think they're opposed to limited amounts of technology. I think the point with the Navi that it's so appealing is that the technology is subservient to their higher vision of the good. So they're not going to blast up home tree to get the unobtainium underneath. They would never do that because they have a very ordered right. view of how creation is meant to run. And it's actually humanity's disordered version that makes us say, wow, this metal is way more valuable than the neural synapses of the trees all around us. Right, and Grace is like, the wealth of Pandora is not in the ground. It's in the, it's in the ecology. Right. It's in the way that the plants and the animals and the people interact with each and other. And she's totally right. I mean, she's completely right. But the, yep. you know, like, again, they're stereotypes. But there's a, there's a real lesson to be learned here, evidenced by the fact that humanity does this again and again and again throughout history. Those with power take yeah. what they want from the people who have less power. That is the general flow of human history yeah. post-fall. Sometimes human beings can get so single-focused, like all they want is the metal in the ground. And they actually miss the much bigger, like spiritual beauty of Pandora almost. And that's something that we all intuitively, when we see it in a movie, we're like, yeah, oof, I don't want to be like the corporate guy there. Casey, it's just striking me the similarities to Dune. Right. Kind of a messiah figure, or like the leader, the savior leader, and the people and their religion, and also that there's a, a commodity of great value in nature that can be monetized. Right, like the spice in Dune. How do you see them similar, and how do you see those two? Because uh, I would, my intuition says they're actually saying opposite things. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about Frank Herbert's worldview, which I think is pretty much materialism. Whereas right. James Cameron has a very like vibrant kind of spirituality that he wanted to come through with Avatar. Mm -hmm. That's real. That is real. Yeah. Whereas Dune, it's... It's not just the mysticism of the people. Right. 
Yeah, Dune is probably, I would argue, a little more disrespectful towards indigenous people in that world because it really is about power. It's about the mechanics of power and how that works. And I guess there's kind of a warning that that could be used to sort of take over the world in Dune. But I, yeah, but I think it's about the mechanics of power, whereas James Cameron really cares about the spirituality and the balance of nature. That's what he wants to preserve. And I would say his worldview, in this movie at least, is pantheism. Now, real quick to clarify, because I Googled this a second ago, the difference between pantheism and panentheism. Are you familiar with I'm not. the difference? Well, tell me the results of your Google. <laughs> Picture a Venn diagram. There's a circle that's God, and then there's a circle that's nature, and they're connected, but they're not touching and they're not overlapping. God is separate from nature. Then there's pantheism, which is that nature and God are one circle. They're the right. same thing. Then there's panentheism, which is picture like, um, like if you had a hard-boiled egg and you sliced it in half. God is a big circle, and inside is nature, which is an expression of God, but it doesn't, it's not all of God. Like, God is bigger than nature. Interesting. Which, to me, sounds like what Avatar is kind of striking at because of the ways that Awa is personified. She's more than just the sum of of all the creatures on Pandora. She actually seems to have uh, like a will and a, an a intention. But, well, I don't know. Does Awa exist outside of Pandora? I think would be the, the main question I'd want to ask. Like, is, is Awa on Earth or on Mars or on other, in other yeah, places? Yeah, is there still Awa where there are no trees and no Navi? Because huh. that would definitively right. answer the question for me. My suspicion is no. Yeah. But what do you think? It's nebulous. Like, I don't know if it's maybe fleshed out as much because it it just isn't. There's just not enough space in the movie. But I think there's a contradiction there because on one hand, the higher reverence for nature is the goal because we're placing such a huge value on on nature and its connectivity. But then we keep wanting the narrative to go like, Awa has special blessing for Jake, who is off world. Like, Jake is a human. And his body was grown in a test tube. He's not part of Awa, but she accepts him into it. I don't know. It just feels like that feels like they're not quite landing it in in the world of pantheism. It feels like Awa is outside of it a little bit. If she's able to accept an outsider. um, I see where you're going with that. I don't know. I feel like that'll, like along exactly those lines, I feel like that might be the critique of modern audiences, like 2022 audiences watching this in the sense of, we don't want a white savior complex, you know? We're, like, way more self-aware about that now than we were even, like, 10 years ago. I think 10 years ago, this movie was, like, radical in its support for, like, the environment and uh, on behalf of indigenous peoples who have been taken over by sort of imperialism. And now I think we're just even more self-aware about the ways that how we tell that story comes across. Yeah, totally. So here's a question that I had, though, Carlin. Part of the balance of nature, do you think it involves the Navi exerting some kind of stewardship or dominion over nature? Yeah. When there's a threat to nature, they feel this responsibility to fight back, not just to protect themselves. Um, In fact, they'll sacrifice themselves in order to protect their home. So that feels like a strong sense of responsibility. What do you think? I was just thinking about how they subdue their banshees. You know, they like rassle them to the ground and they're like you're mine you know like and so there is like a sense in which there's room for the navi to sort of be the kingpin like the linchpin uh species on the planet by design almost like that's okay all of that all of the like taming of horses and taming the banshees and um even hunting and saying they're sorry when they kill the deer it's like all of that is respectfully done, but it's still within the confines of the Navi are almost like the guardians of nature a little bit. And as such, they make nature subservient to them, but not in a way that's like sad or bad. They don't abuse nature. They respect her as their mother. That's their worldview. And that's what the movie is like. That is good. That is okay. Like, it's okay to hunt if you are respectful of and aware of the ways that this life interacts with all other lives. I really like that. I do too. And I think we can get into that in our Christian worldview because there are things we're going to agree with and things we're going to disagree with. But I did notice that in, yeah. even in like our kind of utopian, idyllic view of nature, there's a sense in which um, 
the Navi are almost like a stand-in for what humanity should be. Mm. Yeah. They're not afraid to innovate to some extent, but there's an awareness of their role within the natural world, and they take it seriously, but it doesn't actually, they don't just like lay over and let animals eat them. It's not a passive role. Yeah, right. Um, can I ask you a question? Well, you mentioned belonging, and I just want to ask, what, what does it mean to you? Yeah, I mean, the movie's really wrestling with that. Jake wants to belong. Uh, you can see it when the colonel talks to him at the beginning. It's like that identity of like, ah, I'm a Marine, and this colonel's treating me like a Marine, and it feels good. It feels like belonging. It's actually what, I'm, what I want more than anything. And by contrast, the Navi, start, Jake starts to belong with them, and he is longing for that that sense, but there's a sense in which he knows he's the outsider and he's got to prove himself so badly. And so the central theme, the central journey he goes on is, where do I belong? How can I belong? When I don't resonate with my own culture and when I'm longing to be a part of another culture, how do I belong? And I guess, Carlin, the movie resolves it by saying Jake can fully belong to the Navi. Yeah. If he respects Awa, if he sort of conquers the the huge dragon and leads them to victory over the Imperials, if he throws his lot in with uh-huh. them, he can belong. And Natiri accepts him. She's like, at the end, again, she like picks him up in his human body and she's like, ah, oh, it's my Jake. Like, <laughs> there's a longing yeah. for belonging there that James Cameron's like tapping into in the audience. And it's meant to be resolved in the fact that Jake finally at last does belong to the people. He's made it right, and he's led them to victory, yes. and so there's the catharsis we're going for. How does that strike you? Yeah, the two things are, one, he has to turn his back on the old way, and two, he also has to be chosen. You keep hearing this theme. He's like, well, I've already chosen the woman that I want, but she has to choose me in return, and she's like, I already have. Yay! <laughs> Yay. Um, the same thing with the Banshees, the same thing with Awa. Like what we've seen from the beginning is that you can choose that you want to be a part of something, but unless it chooses you back, there's not really much hope for you. And thankfully it does choose Jake. They, they all do choose Jake in return. Um, but there is a risk that he could be rejected and like that would be really painful. I just see that belonging culturally as the dominant question of so many people today. We so huh. badly want to belong to a group or a tribe. That instinct is is alive and well. Yeah. But for a lot of people, it's sullied by our awareness of our own checkered history as, as cultures. Yeah, right. And Carlin, it just strikes me that that balance is so hard to get right. It's so difficult. I mean, you, you go back 100 years ago and things were starting to ramp up with Nazi Germany. I mean, well, they were still in the... Uh the uh, Weimar Republic. But Germans were going, who are we as Germans? We lost World War I. We've been humiliated. We're really trying to find that sense of belonging. And it turned into this big, horrible thing. You know, like nationalism was a dominant theme of the 20th century. And you see where that could go horribly awry. On the other hand, I think you see examples of like patriotism to that rise to meet it like the french underground for example their country's overrun by nazis and they're like this isn't france this isn't the france that we believe in and they're fighting against it and so in the 20th century we believed in nations yeah in the 21st century we've sort of reacted against that with some good reason but now we're going okay but who are we like we don't really know yeah. if it's okay to be proud to be an American. And I know that this is like a politically fraught question. A lot of people would say, heck yeah, it is. We just need to recover that. A lot of people would be like, I just can't. I don't want to. I don't feel connected with that. But then the question is, how do we find belonging in the real world? When it, when it doesn't seem to come from your nation or your, the, the place where you live. Yeah. And I think to add one layer of complexity to it, we can't really, well, it's hard to find belonging by uh, appropriating other people's culture. And I think we're increasingly aware of that. But by the same token, there's a beautiful part of culture, which is that it's meant to be shared. And it is shared. And sometimes living around people of a different culture, and they accept you and they welcome you, that's actually a very beautiful human gift of sharing culture with people. Yeah. And saying like, you, you aren't really like one of us by birth, but you belong here with us if you want to. 
Yeah. Like I'm thinking of my friend Janelle Wood. I was just on her podcast, Finding Something Real. She has had so many uh, foreign exchange students stay with her. And I don't think Janelle's ever like said it explicitly because that might be like weird. But there's a sense in which each of those foreign exchange students from the Netherlands or Germany, the goal is for them to walk away feeling like they now have a piece of American culture that they get to take with them that that is a part of who they are then. And we can laugh about it and be good natured. Like we're not taking it too seriously, but like that's actually the beauty of those students like coming to America and, and vice versa. Like I've studied abroad and I feel like strong affinity for the places where I've lived and I want to be respectful of their culture, but there is something about culture that that's meant to be shared. And we, we are, we're not wrong for longing for that belonging with those cultures. Yeah, I love that. At its best, I think we can share and appreciate culture without fear of it being um, misused or abused. And our, our guard is high, like our guard is up right now as, as a culture for ways in which that's been misused. But at its best, it's something very special and very human. So, Carlin, like, on our Christian worldview of that, I just want to ask you, like, how do we do that right? How do you think we can share culture and establish belonging across culture well? I want to say first that it, it starts with, like, fostering uh, curiosity for things that are different than you and, and, like, peeking in. But you also have to be invited, in a sense. Like, if you're just gung-ho about some culture that isn't your native culture, there's like landmines you can step on. And so you want to be very uh, careful not to step on those. But I think when there's an invitation from a native of whatever culture, and I'm using that word very loosely, native, but someone who belongs to a different culture than you, when there's an invitation, that's like your ticket in. You know what I mean? Yeah. Why does that invitation matter? Guards are up because when you've been hurt in the past, yeah. or misunderstood in the past, your walls go yeah. up and your vulnerability closes yeah. up. Once bitten, twice shy. You are much more reticent to yes. protect those precious things when you've seen them trampled on or abused. Yes. So I think that's the main thing is an invitation. It starts from a place of like the person who, who that culture belongs to has to kind of in some ways take the initiative to say, yeah, this is okay. I'm, I'm welcoming you in. Like that cultural invitation has to flow out of a deeper sense of comfort and maybe even justice. Like if there's open wounds that have been done culturally, it's hard to extend that welcome to people. Yeah. Culturally yeah. and naturally. I think that I think that's really well said, Carlin. That that invitation matters because if there's wounds in the past, those matter. And we shouldn't just help ourselves to other people's cherished traditions and beliefs without an awareness of that. But it's delicate, right? Like, I think it's nebulous because it's primarily interpersonal. Yeah, say more about that. Well, I think it, it's not like a formula. It's not like I've lived in Mexico for three months. Therefore, I can have, you know, a quinceanera. <laughs> it's like, yeah, right. it's actually like, it has to follow the rules of interpersonal relationships, which are centered around real values like respect and honor and deference to someone who this matters to them so much more than it will ever matter to me. Right. And those things are real, but they're also like culturally contingent. And so I don't think there is a bright line. Like the whole question of like, what can little kids wear for Halloween? Like this is a, a new question we've asked as oh. the modern world. Yeah. I don't think it's from a totally bad place, right? Like we've been saying, like we need to ask that question. But if we're looking for like a rule book by which, okay, you're allowed to dress up like this princess, little girl, and you're allowed to dress up like this princess. Yeah, right. We're, we're going to get in trouble, like on both sides. If people are like arrogantly like, well, my daughter can dress up like whoever the heck she wants. Okay, yeah, technically, yes, but um, it might be insensitive and you need to be like, it'd be good of you to be sensitive to the ways that maybe other cultures view your daughter dressing up like their folk hero or whatever. And on the flip side, people who are like, little white girl, you can't dress up like Pocahontas. Like that's appropriation. It's like, ooh, do we want to be that stingy about it? Like, do we want little right. white children to only dress up as little white heroes? <laughs> you know, because there's something about that that feels wrong too. Right. Like it, then it becomes, if you, if you can't do any sharing of culture or any like 
encourage any interest or curiosity between two cultures, then where are you? You're actually, you're back in kind of a backwards way of thinking, which is you are on your side and I'm on my side and we don't have anything to do with each other. Right. It it reminds me so much of just being a guest in someone else's home, you know? Like when you're a guest, yes. when you're a first time guest in someone's home, you walk in and you're like, do you want me to leave my shoes on or, um, or take them off? And some people feel very strongly, please take your shoes off. You got it. No problem. I'm happy to follow the rules of your house. But the closer you get to someone, the more you are familiar with their rules. My friend the other day was like, if you don't come in and walk into my closet and pick something out to wear the next day, I'm going to be offended. <laughs> I was like, whoa, um, thank you. That is, a, that is an invitation to a very, like, that's, your closet is special to you, and I feel very welcomed. I love that. But the closer you get to someone, the more you feel comfortable around them because you're aware of what's a taboo and what's not a taboo. Yeah, well said. And it's no good, like, insisting on your way in those interactions. Like, if you're a guest in someone's home, their rules don't have to make sense to you. Yeah. Um, Now, it's important to distinguish between like rights and liberties Uh versus sort of softer values like respect or congeniality or, you know, humility Mm. in that sense. This is my own opinion on this, but I, I wonder if we're getting into some trouble because we're trying to enforce things as like rules when they result from a strong respect for other people's rights. Like it has to be built on a foundation of justice first. Yeah. And so that means actually, I can't tell anyone else's kid what they should or shouldn't dress up for Halloween. They have a right to do that. Also, maybe we need to be real about the injustice that's happened in the past. Like, like if people are wounded, it might be because real bad things have happened in the past. And we shouldn't expect people to share culture when they've been hurt like that. There needs to be reparation before there can be vulnerability again. Yeah. But my opinion is that that's not something you can fully legislate. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it has to be interpersonal. It's like a spiritual value that that arises among cultures when there is a higher degree of sensitivity and care and compassion. And the best the law can do is mandate that justice be done. And, and I mean that in a negative sense, like like a um, like negative justice, like you can't violate the rights of anyone else. I think that's the best the law can actually do for us. Yeah. And the rest is contingent on people's goodwill towards each other, which we are sorely lacking today on all sides, on all sides. And I think part of the pain is realizing that we've lacked it for a long time, especially towards Native mm. Americans and especially towards people of color. Even recently, I've found in my life ways that I have not fully appreciated the struggle and the suffering that people of color have gone through in this country. And so while, while I want to say, like, people should have a right to do X, Y, or Z, or that, like, for example, like, I don't think we should do reverse, um, like an experiment, like, hey, let's have all the white people not come to campus yeah. this day. You know, some universities are doing things like that. And I, I just don't. I don't think that's right. I think we should strive for total equality under the law. But I would also strive for more interpersonal deference than I have showed in the past. Like that's actually a virtue and a value that I think more, more of us need to be aware of. I like that a lot. So Carlin, here's the question I want to ask you. We've been sharing a lot of our opinions and sort of cultural observations about what does it mean to belong to a culture? Who gets to belong to a culture? But what does scripture say? Like, what, what does our founding document say about what it means to belong to a culture? My first thought goes to that God is not an ignorer of culture. He creates culture. He creates human beings to, to be this way. And we create art and we create, you know, the things that, that make up a culture are all just expressions of human nature, and those are beautiful and good that God designed. But then the other thing I would just think to say is that our primary identity, even though our culture is honored and dignified by God, our primary identity should be Mm. being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of the New Testament is talking about the conflict between Jews and Gentile Christians who are trying to figure out we have these very strong ethnic and and religious identities, Hmm. but now we're coming under one banner, which is Christ, 
And how are we going to prioritize like these things that are deeply important to us? Things like circumcision was like a big problem in in the early church because some people were like, you can't Mm. be in here. You can't be one of us if you're not going to be circumcised. But God was saying, um, actually, circumcision isn't the sign anymore. Baptism is going to be like the primary um, sign of your faith. So anyways, those are my initial thoughts. But but what tell me, what do you think about all that? On one hand, God loves culture, like you were saying, and he's not immune or oblivious to the ways that culture can be appropriated or abused. I thought of Psalm 137, uh, and this is after Israel's been conquered by Babylon, and all their people have been taken out of their native land and brought to a Mm. land of captivity. And Psalm 137 says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Mm. There on the poplars, a type of tree, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. And the psalmist says, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. It's just like this depth of sorrow at losing something so precious, like your homeland. And I just think, how many people in the world have experienced that? I mean, we're seeing massive uh, global migration on a huge scale. The, big, the largest since World War II, m- millions of people are on the move, whether they're fleeing war in the Middle East, whether they're coming from Latin American countries uh, to America's southern border or moving elsewhere. And for a lot of people, they've like lost their home. And I think scripture validates that. And it's like the emotional sensitivity of that, like our tormentors are asking us for songs of joy. I think of slavery yeah. in, in, the, in America. Yeah. And gosh, like there's something valid about that pain. And I think God recognizes it and validates it. So on one hand, yeah, I know that these questions are politically fraught. But again, my conviction is that you need a foundation of of political justice for there to be healing. But so much of this is interpersonal. And the question is, how ought we treat people that we really care about? Because if you really love someone, you're not going to just rip their culture out of their hands and try to do it differently or better than them. Or, or forget like its origins or like, you know what I mean? There's all sorts of things you're not going to do if you're in relationship with someone. Or make them perform it for right. you. If they don't want to, right? It's like, it's meant to be a giving thing and we've made it a taking thing primarily. But when there's justice and when there's harmony and that sharing of culture is one of the best and most beautiful aspects of being a human being, it's incredible. It, it really is so much fun. It, it shows you the dimensions of people like you, you never thought you'd be able to see them. And there is something so sweet about belonging to a culture that's an adopted culture to you. And I think scripture speaks really powerfully to that as well, like you were saying with the Jews and Gentiles. One of the critiques of the Old Testament, I don't know if you've heard this, I feel like I hear it often, is like, oh, God's kind of actually racist. Like he has his special people and everybody else is excluded because he picked (laughs) his favorites. And like, yeah, he has a chosen people. He makes promises with them. And then he's very invested in their Um, story and development. But it would be a mistake to say that God is exclusive in that because there's examples all throughout the Old Testament of outsiders being fully adopted into the family of God. Oh, yeah. Regardless of their bloodline, their history, their occupation, their morality. Oh, man. Like there's provision throughout Old Testament law for if a foreigner wants to adopt Yahweh as his God, he is welcome to do so. Oh, yeah. There's nothing preventing him as long as he's willing to be obedient to Yahweh and like do the things that are that are part of the culture that he set up. Yeah. I have to laugh at that objection because it's clear if you're making it, you've never read much of the Old Testament. Yeah. Because the reason why Israel was in captivity to Babylon is because God was judging them because of two things. One, they'd forgotten the Lord and they'd worshiped idols for generations, some of yep. the practices of which are despicable, human sacrifice, sacrifice, that kind of a main, thing. Yeah. So, but they forgot the Lord. But then second of all, they failed to uh, make provision for widows and foreigners in their midst. They perverted justice. So God was like, you were slaves in Egypt. And the point of making you a nation is so that you 
produce justice on the earth and you take care of people in need and never oppress a foreigner. Like that is central to so many of the prophets. In Amos 9, here's one like hang your hat on kind of verse. Amos 9, yeah. 7, God says, are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord. Didn't I bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphor and the Arameans from Kerr? He's just putting it to him. He's like, I've chosen you for a real purpose. You are beloved to me. And that's yeah. clear, but he's like, don't think you're the only nation that I care about on this, on this earth. Remember yeah. what I made you for, actually. Like, God's not just arbitrarily picking favorites. He, he made Israel to do something. And when they failed to do it, they went into captivity. But I was going to say, Carlin, the beauty of, and, and honestly, a large reason why you and I think this way as Americans is that the Bible set a revolution going with culture which prioritized belief above mere ethnicity. So like that verse in Galatians that you were talking about, the Apostle Paul is resolving this tension between, or he's trying to resolve this tension between Jewish Christians, Jewish believers, and Gentile believers who had serious differences of culture. And Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that race or ethnicity or culture don't matter, just like gender doesn't. Gender matters. You know, it's like all those things are real categories and we should respect them. But the primary thing about you is that you are one in Christ Jesus. Well, just in the same way that he was breaking down the cultural barriers between Jews and Gentiles, he was also making provision for the barriers between gender. Like in a Christian, in an early Christian community, you could walk in and see an unmarried woman sitting across the table from a married Jewish man, sitting across the table from their servant, who a second ago was just bringing in the bread and bringing in the food, but now they're all sitting together yeah. and learning and listening on the same. They're all equal before the foot of the cross in a way that would have been so confusing for totally. anyone who walked in. A centurion could come in and be part of this, <sighs> you know, like a tax collector. These are people that out in the street they would be on opposite sides of the street holding opposing picket fence signs. Right. But when they were part of a, the body of Christ, they had this weird unity that just broke down all the barriers. Absolutely. And to be a Christian means surrendering your life to the lordship of Jesus. That is hard for each of us. And it's going to be hard for cultural reasons, among other things. Like, as Americans, I just think of this example. We're so individualistic. We're like, what's good for me and mine and me and all about me and my freedom and my... And the yeah. Lord's like, don't use your freedom as an excuse to do bad things and to sin. Don't, uh, and also, remember that you're a part of a community and the things you do matter to other people. And you have obligation to them. Gosh, we hate that word. Yeah. But it's true in God's sight. So I have to, like, give up that part of my culture or at least let Jesus sort of sanctify it. So I guess, I guess for me, resolving that tension of like, how do you belong to a culture? I think all the principles we've kind of talked about, are like respect and justice and interpersonality are really good. But I think you got to hang your hat on. You need a source of identity that's actually deeper than culture if you're ever going to share it. Mm. Or if you're ever going to give up parts of your culture that are problematic in light of a deeper, better truth, yeah. you need a deeper, better truth than just culture. And I wonder if that's part of our problem today is we don't have anything deeper than our tribes. And so we're harsh with people. We're caustic. We either abuse culture or we don't want to share it. Or we're, It's like all of, the, all of the problems on any side of that that you could see happening. And they're not all equal. I want to be clear about that. Like I can hear people going, well, like, don't be sorry for white people. We appropriated all the Native American. It's like, yes. Actually, yes, like there's, there's much to grieve there. And it's not, I'm not saying all of these exchanges are equal. Right. Power influences them. But if your primary identity is like as an, a white American, or that's like your cultural, like you're going to be unwilling to part with the things. Like, um, like you're talking about appropriating Native American culture. There's, there was like this huge movement, I guess, kind of in the 80s and before to use Native American terminology and things in summer camps. So like all these summer camps were being named things like the Mohawks or the, oh, you know, yeah. like all their, their bunks or whatever. Um, but if you're so committed to like, oh yeah, but I kind of love like, you know, Indians, like you're kind of enchanted with the way that your culture has appropriated somebody else's. Yeah. And 
there might be a piece of value in that, but if you are so clinging to it, you're never going to be able to see the other side of the coin, which is that there's real people that this is their real and active culture, and you've just taken it and and made it mean whatever you think you want it to mean. Yeah. You're going to be blind to that, and you're going to miss that that's hurting somebody. Yeah. And I mean, the, the other side of that coin is that there are tons, there are plenty of people, like Native American people who are fine with you know, different like major league baseball team names or, you know, there's like controversy about this and each side can point to, and it's like, look, you know, I'm from this tribe and I, I don't care. Like, I think there's a, a dope mascot and nickname and which I think just goes back to the point of like, this is interpersonal primarily. If you're looking for hard and fast rules, like always blank, 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 or never do, you know, it's like we're going to wrestle. And that means things can change culturally. And the safe way to do that is to anchor what we do in light of unchanging moral values, like justice, like liberty for people, like interpersonal respect for people and cultures. Carlin, how do we live in harmony with nature? I love this question because I, you know how much I love animals. Like as a kid, Truth. I would flip through the Sky Mall magazine on airplanes and just count how many dogs there were in the ads. <laughs> There'd be like, oh, here's a dog showcasing like this cool dog bed that you can get. And I'd be like, there's one dog. Okay, looking through all the pages. Oh, a dog, a dog. There was nothing um, else that mattered to little Carlin. Nothing else was Just interesting. Dogs. I didn't want to read anything. I, we would go to museums and I'd be like, well, why does this matter unless there's an animal? If there was an animal, like even if it was a bird, like a taxidermy bird up in the tree, I'd be like, there, that's worth looking at. I try to exercise my theology in my relationship to animals because I have this fish tank and I have this really strong sense of responsibility that I am trying to provide for. I bought this fish for like $5. And but I really feel the sense of responsibility to like give him a home that is um healthy for him and where he can thrive. And I'm really distraught when it doesn't turn out, which has happened a couple times. But anyways, I'm really inspired by uh the space trilogy c.s lewis's space trilogy and he has this character the green lady and she's kind of a picture of like eve before the fall and he shows her surrounded by all these creatures that look to her as their ruler but the way she treats them is with this benevolence that is like a perfect understanding of the order of nature like she honors and dignifies them and they honor and dignify her in ways that feel like exactly how they were designed to be. Um, they are lesser creatures. They're, you know, they're not necessarily even persons, um, but they, they have maybe souls or they have personalities and they, um, anyways, all that to say, I, this is something I like to think about. C.S. Lewis liked animals too. He did. And he has, just a lot of interesting things to say about that. How would you answer that question, though? I was reminded of Proverbs 12, uh, where it says, The righteous care for the needs of their animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. Ooh, um, unpack that. I mean, I think it's just proof that it's like going back to our design function as human beings. We were put in the garden to take care of the world. That is our role. So I know a lot of people watching Avatar will bristle at, you know, especially in 2009, there was like some not so subtle political messaging. Like they're <laughs> literally directly quoting George W. Bush. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with the big bad military, coming, whatever. <laughs> we'll, we'll bristle. Some people bristle at that, depending on your political, you know, persuasion. Or just your artistic. Just be a little more subtle, please. <laughs> just for yeah, the sake of art. Oh my gosh. Yeah, but anyway. Fair. That's fair. And also, I just want to be clear, like, Pantheism is not a Christian worldview. No. I, I think it's a, an, an insufficient view of the world. Mm. But that being said, there's a strong, uh, I want to call it an Edenic appeal to Avatar. Edenic e referencing the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. Yeah, it's like, this is how things were meant to be almost. Yeah. And I noticed that more this time. Like, the Navi are not afraid to exercise dominion over nature. Yeah. They tame the beasts. They, you know, they like kind of enforce. They're like the the stewards of the natural harmony that nature is supposed to have. That is a. It's not um, a uniquely Christian ideal. I think it's a uniquely human instinct. But Scripture validates and shows us the origins of that. Like 
Like that is part of the worldview that we've inherited. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to see, again, because politics, literally, yeah. it's just it's politics. But caring for the world is like job number one for people. How do you see the main differences between a Christian mindset of nature versus like a Navi or a pantheistic view of nature? Yeah, that is a money question. Okay, there's two differences. I'll just say them and then okay. we can get into it. First, nature itself is in a broken state. Pandora is like seemingly perfect in its circle of life. But I think nature is, is broken. Second of all, God is different than nature, and that is critical. Mm. And we can get into, I, could, I can get into the reasons why that is. But those are the two big things. Yeah. Yeah, so with nature being broken, I think Avatar presents it as like a utopia world, and there are real strong elements. Like, I'd want to live on Pandora if I could be a Navi. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that'd be sweet. So there's a closeness to nature, but there's also the truth that, um, that nature is broken and death and cancer and bad things uh, happen, even in the natural world. Yeah. And I think it's easy for us, like safely buffered by creature comforts, mm -hmm. to look back on a state of nature, you know, undisturbed as being like ideal. But I think um, in the words of Thomas Hobbes, Life is nasty, brutish, and short. <laughs> and it's not actually meant to be that way. When God sees death, he doesn't go, ah, yes, just how I designed it. I think he goes, creation, I mean, in the book of Romans, it says creation itself is groaning, waiting for redemption. Yeah. Because it's been subjected to futility because of the one who subjected it. Meaning, in that passage, God. God lays the curse down. He lays the curse down to protect them from living eternally in a state of brokenness, brokenness and, and sin. He's and injustice. like, okay, now that sin and and corruption has entered the world, we're going to put a stop to this right now. Yeah. So that there can be a rescue plan. He didn't want the state of death and sickness to just be a perpetual thing, and for us to live forever with sin, because to live forever with sin would just it would be li live forever apart from God, which is death. Actually, it's spiritual death. So say about, what was this, your second point? Well, God is different than nature, and I think, I think that's important. Like when we were talking about um, would Ewa, their deity, exist in space, you know, or apart from yeah. the synapses that are present in the trees on the planet. Could you kill her? Like if you killed Pandora, yeah. you killed all the trees, would she, could she come back or would she just be done? Yeah, I think the implication is you, you could kill nature, and that's why it's important to protect nature. But we shouldn't worship things that we are also, we have power over. For me, I, I'm almost content to just rest the case there and just say, we need something bigger than nature to restore nature. We also need something bigger than nature to show us the balance that we're supposed to have with nature. Because you've said this on the podcast before, if everything is nature, if God is nature, then we are technically nature. Like that distinction blurs. Like what actually is yeah. nature at some point? Like we could say we're out of balance, but on whose standard? By, by which metric? Right. The natural world, species go extinct all the time. Yeah. Animals kill and eat each other, hunt each other to extinction. Diseases ravage, forests burn, burn, you know, all the That's time. That's not only... Uh, it's like because humans have disrupted some balance. Exactly. We're not the only problem out here. Nature itself is in a state of confusion and brokenness. We need God to give us a standard for what balance actually looks like. Right. And to imbue us with some authority by which we can take action of any kind. Otherwise, what business do we have domesticating horses, you know, or <laughs> drinking yeah. milk from cows or anything? And I, there's, for each of these examples, there's someone who's going to say, don't do that. What business do we have not doing those things? Right. Like, who's going to stop me and why would it matter? Because I'm the apex predator. I'm part of nature. Right. And you could say, well, yeah, but you have a responsibility to make sure that um, the world doesn't get thrown into disruption and then all die. And I'm like, yeah, but you use the word responsibility. So responsibility comes from something higher than you that source. dictates that you have a responsibility. The last piece of this that for me makes theism stand out from pantheism is the aspect of personhood. Personhood is clearly like interacting with people, relationships are clearly one of the highest goods that there is in the world. Like mm -hmm. we are made for relationship. The story of Avatar would not be very interesting if there were no people taking action. 
But how do you get personhood from non-personhood in a sense? Like how does an impersonal right. force give rise to something greater than itself? Right. So I think our personhood, like our status as individuals with personalities should point us towards something bigger than us who is himself a being with a personality and who takes actions, like distinct actions, mm -hmm. not a force. You know, that's why the force in Star Wars is cool, but it's not a good enough deity Yeah, all by itself. Right. We're meant to long for a relationship with a person. And Awa, they kind of don't want her to be personal because she doesn't take sides. She's a little bit right. like the force, just this right. mystical connectivity. Um, she is all things, and we are maybe part of her. I don't know. Right. But they all also can't really get away from talking about her as if she's personal. Right. Because that seems to be what we're wired for. Like, it's like we're looking for a personal deity. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like when Grace is being, she's dying, and they try that transfer, and then she dies. And she says, Awa is real, Jake. I'm with her. Do you know I cried when I saw that this time? <laughs> Yes, because you love Grace. And the thing that got me is this revelation like, okay, we've been, we've believed this intellectually all this time, but now I'm living it. Like she's, she's like, I'm with her. Like the thing that I've been talking about and making decisions about and, you know, actively pursuing to understand, but now it's real to Grace in a way that she hadn't even really fathomed and could never have been prepared for. Right. And that sign that she gives to Jake. And I just think that grounds the whole world for me in like, okay, this isn't just some cool scientific synapses between trees. The ancestors are living in the trees. Awa is living in the trees and she has a will to protect the people. And that right. makes the world feel so complete and the story way more compelling to me. I don't know why. Oh, totally. I felt a little melancholy at it though this time, Carlin, just because I feel the limits of pantheism. What ha essentially happened could be described scientifically. Her mind kind of got absorbed into the planetary ecosystem. But it's just the planetary ecosystem, really. It's actually, in a sense, there's a weird um, sameness between the scientific materialism that Grace has always believed in and the sort of spiritual oneness that the Navi uh -huh. believe in. But it's not really the summation of all her hopes and desires. Mm. Because then she lives and dies with the planet. Like it's it's a it's a it's a compelling immediate answer in a narrative sense, but it doesn't answer the big existential questions that life demands of us in a, in a if bigger Pandora sense. If Pandora was ending, it would just be like, oh, yeah, Grace would the end. whole thing would be over. James Cameron's sort of pantheism is subservient to his evolutionary materialism. Mm -hmm. That is a huge guess. <laughs> that's that's Let's pure conjecture. Him. Let's I, just send him an email. <laughs> listen to our podcast, James. You got nothing better to do. So, Carlin. Overall, Avatar. yeah, what a cool thing that we got to watch. It's very cool. In, and then go to the theme park of. Oh, so awesome. Okay, this was Avatar. We'll see you next time on Cinema Snorkel.